Well, we come this evening to Galatians chapter 5, uh, where we'll look at the first 15 verses. Galatians 5, uh, verses 1 through 15. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Amen. Well, Paul is bringing his letter to its conclusion. Or we might maybe better say, with one commentator, Paul is bringing his letter to its crescendo. Now, one commentator writes, if there is anything in Galatians that functions as a propositio, it is 5-1. Paul's proposal of the course of action that the audience is to avoid and the contrary course of articulates the principal exhortation toward which all of the preceding argumentation has been leading. This is the crescendo of the letter. Everything that that Paul's been writing from 1-1 all the way through has been leading to this absolutely central thought that Paul wants to drive into the hearts of his readers, that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, we must never again submit to a yoke of slavery. Now, Paul has confronted his readers, as we've seen over these past few weeks from different angles, and he's used different arguments, right? We've seen how Paul has, has approached this issue by justifying the gospel that he himself has preached. He does it again here a little bit as he says, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? We've noticed him take that, that personal approach with them already, that they know the gospel that they have heard from him or, or through him already, and he has defended his ministry amongst them. Now, he's spoken of the, the strength with which he was known to counter uh, other false gospels. He has appealed to his reputation that has gone before him. But we've noticed also how Paul has exegeted the place of the law, both the moral and the ceremonial, and last time I preached, I think, even 
down into the civil law. And Paul has dove into the law. Here the Galatians have gone wholeheartedly into the law, trying to be justified by it. And Paul has gone into that law, teased it apart, opened it up, and showed them that there's actually nothing there by which they could possibly be saved. And Paul has even, as we saw last week, appealed to them by the way of Old Testament allegory, bringing in Sarah and Hagar to illustrate for his readers, to give them this this vivid and evocative picture, strengthening his, his argument about the dichotomy between the freedom that is received in Christ and the slavery that comes through trying to be justified by the law. And all of it has been leading to this point, to this proposition that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Another way we could say it is that Galatians 5.1 is the beating heart of the letter. It is the core principle and point that Paul wants his readers to grasp. And the very thing that has so broken his heart as he has seen them depart from it. What they had forgotten, or what the false teachers had led them away from, verse 7, hindered them from obeying the truth, was that at the very core of the gospel, at the very center of the promises that God brings to us in Jesus Christ, is the promise of freedom, the promise of emancipation from our slavery to sin, the promise that although we were once enslaved to sin, we have now been set free by the broken body and split blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That by His being cursed by God, being hanged on a tree, having obeyed the law, to appeal to my last passage, Christ having borne the weight of our curse and slavery, we now have been set free. And what Paul wants us to see is that when we lose sight of that, when we lose sight at the the very heart of the gospel is this freedom, when we lose that, we lose everything. When the fundamental freedom of redemption is lost and we again find ourselves submitting to a yoke of slavery, that is, when we find ourselves believing that there is something that we must do in order to be saved, or something that we can do in order to be saved, when we, when we lose that, we, we lose everything, because freedom is the very core of the benefits and blessings that Jesus secured for His people at His cross. And as Paul has been alluding, as he has gone back into the Old Testament to tease out the law, and as he's gone back to the allegory of Sarah and Hagar, Paul wants his readers to understand whether or not we think they come from Gentile North Galatia or mixed Jew-Gentile Southern Galatia, whether regardless of where you land on that interpretive decision, Paul now wants his readers to see that, that, that this is something that is found throughout Scripture, right? It's the story of the whole Old Testament, right? What is the grand narrative that underpins almost all of the Old Testament? It's the story of the Exodus. You will find that story being referred to and appealed to 
from Exodus 1 all the way through to the end of the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, we find it even before that. Right? What is the Exodus? It's the, it's the story of God's fulfillment to what He said to Abraham in, Galatia, in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and we will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Right? The story of the Exodus being given to us as this grand narrative from Genesis 15 on, from the book of the beginnings, this, this framework being established to understand redemption. Right? We see it in the prologue to the story, in the story of Joseph and his brothers, or maybe even a step further back, the story of Jacob and Esau, and they are wrestling together, setting the scene for what comes in the next generation. That which is the sin of the father being born in the children with Joseph and his brothers, which leads Joseph to being enslaved in Egypt, which then leads his brothers and his father to go over, and they are then being afflicted for 400 years, becoming slaves of the Egyptians and enduring the miseries of that servitude, just as God had promised in Genesis 15. But then we see God coming in fulfillment of His covenant in Exodus 2. Exodus 2, verse 24, God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God remembered. And do you remember we said this morning, the Hebraic remembering is remembering with respect to action, recalling to mind with the respect to action. It's not that God had forgotten the covenants that He had made, but rather that God, seeing the affliction of His people, rose to save them. And so we see God taking them through, up out of Egypt, through the wilderness on that great journey of discipleship, leading them to understand what it means to be the redeemed people of God, giving them the ceremonial law, which was intended to lead them in anticipation of an even greater redemption that would come in Christ. We see God settling them in Canaan, in the wake of the Exodus, which was to be a land of freedom a land in which they had peace from all of their enemies, in which they enjoyed the bountiful produce of this land that, as God had said to Moses, was flowing with milk and honey. All of this images of freedom coming in place of their Egyptian slavery. The whole story of the Exodus, one grand enacted parable of the gospel. Israel, once enslaved by sin, but set free by the grace of God. And that history, we know, was inscribed into the rhythms of their lives. It's why the Sabbath was and is so important in the lives of God's people. Why is it that Ezekiel brings the repeated condemnation upon them that they had forgotten the Sabbath? It was because the Sabbath was to be this weekly to testimony in time, reminding them that, remember, Exodus 20, God is their creator, but Deuteronomy 5, that God was their redeemer. 
This great day that was to remind them of the Exodus, to remind them that it was for freedom that God had set them free, and that they were not then to return again to a yoke of slavery under the idols of the nations. It's what was inscribed further into the annual pilgrimage feasts. All of Israel swarming into Jerusalem, coming to the temple, and every one of those feasts reminding them of some different aspect of the glorious freedom that they had by virtue of being God's people. It's what, as we have just alluded to, was inscribed into the ceremonial law. I completely ironically, the law that the Galatians were now looking to for salvation, which has become a yoke of slavery for them, given by God intentionally to remind them that it was for freedom that Christ had set them free. It was for freedom that they had been released from Egypt, drawn out, established in Israel, Jerusalem built, the temple established, all of it pointing forward to a far greater freedom that would come through Jesus Christ. Not a system of works by which they could be saved, but a gospel that was given to them to point them forward. It is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the whole story of Scripture. And it's what underlies Paul's astonishment that they have now turned their back on it. Because to turn their back on this freedom was to forsake everything that was offered to them in Christ. And that, too, we see in the Old Testament, don't we? Right? Even before the Israelites had reached the promised land, they were already longing to go back to Egypt and be under that yoke of slavery again. Even before they crossed the Red Sea, they are already asking to just be allowed to go back to Egypt. Exodus 14, verse 11, the people of God say to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us up out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Well, well no, right? That's, that's not. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It would be better for us, Moses, to die under a yoke of slavery than continue on in this freedom that God is giving us. It's a story repeated during their time in Canaan, always longing for another yoke of slavery. It's what led them into that repeated syncretism with the gods and ideologies of the surrounding pagan nations. It's what we've seen in Isaiah that ultimately led them to the exiles. So when Paul asks in verse 7, you were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth, well, it's clear in the context that he's referring to the false teachers, or it would seem here one particular man that he seems to credit as being the root of this great departure from the gospel. But there is another sense in which the Galatians wandered off on their own. It was in a sense that the Galatians them had hindered themselves by not holding fast to the true Pauline gospel by which they had been first converted. Right? Again, that is the story of the Old Testament, that if we are not careful to rehearse the wonders of the freedom that we have and the redemption we have received from God, if we don't continually count those blessings and number them one by one, we will naturally reflex back to a legalistic 
posture. Now, it used to be, and I can't tell if cars do this anymore. My, my car will steer itself, so it's all a new, strange world of artificial intelligence. But it used to be um, that if you let go of the steering wheel of a car, it would veer to the side of the road. Right? It was a, a built-in uh, safety mechanism, a predisposition of the steering rack to lead you to one side and to keep, uh, and, and if you were to keep on the straight, you had to proactively uh, ho keep hold of that steering wheel. If you were to go in a straight line, you had to be intentional about it. It's the same with the gospel, right? You let go of that steering wheel, you will drift into legalism. Your heart will take you down a road that you ought not to go down into, into some form of belief that if only we do the right thing in the right way at the right time, we will achieve the right results. So it didn't take much for the Galatians to get drawn away. It didn't take much for this wicked actor to come in and preach his plausible arguments, to use the phrase from Colossians, to come in with his philosophies and his and his teachings about the form of the law, because it naturally appealed to their hearts. Right? Again, we see it in the Old Testament. It does not take much to get drawn away if you are not continually, purposefully keeping your eyes fixed on the gospel. But as Paul wants them to see, the danger was that to go, to go away from this gospel was to lose salvation, right? Look at how strongly Paul describes it here. Verse 7, he says, they were running well, right? They were doing great. Now, this needs to be a warning to us that we cannot just stand in judgment on the Galatians and think, well, we're solid, right? We know our doctrine. We come to church. We know that we're saved by grace alone, not saved by works. We know our solas of the Reformation, right? We're good and reformed. We know our doctrines of grace. We'll never get led away. Well, Paul says there was a time in these Galatians' lives when, when they were running well, right? The idea is that they were exemplary in their discipleship of Christ, exemplary in their, in their holding fast to the gospel. But yet, they were led away by this false teaching. And, and verse 4, what's the result? Those who were running well, Paul says, they are severed from Christ. That's the stakes here, right? Not some idea of those who are more free and those who are less free. Not the idea that there are those who, are, who, are, who, have, a, who have a particular kind of Jesus movement, long hair, no shoes, freedom in Christ, and then those who are more straight-laced and upright and disciplined and rigorous. That's not the contrast that Paul's making here, right? Don't, don't think of this in terms of more free and less free. What Paul is saying is if they are to go the way of these false teachers, if they are to submit to circumcision, which is shorthand here for submitting to the rigors of the ceremonial law in order to ob obtain the favor of God, he's saying to do that is to lose salvation. It is to lose grace even. What he's saying is that the gospel is a zero-sum game. You can either be justified by grace, 
or you can be severed from Christ. That's it. No gray area, no margins. You can be justified by grace, or you can, you can try to be justified by your works, but you cannot do both. And the latter will end in you losing salvation. And notice in verse 6, he gives us the reason. He gives us one of those fours. Right, I've said this before, take it or leave it, but, but I do it. I think it's a good thing to do. Always circle the fours in your Bible, because it will help you carry the argument. And Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor circumcision counts for anything, but only, only faith working through love. And as Paul ends the first section of his letter, that is the stark reality he wants to hit home. But as he begins his application in verse 14, he then draws out an important point that is connected to what he has just said in verse 6. Right, so, so follow what he's doing here. It's not more free or less free. It's also not legalism or antinomianism. So it's not that he wants his readers to just give up their spiritual discipline and indulge every desire or just live the way the surrounding world does, right? What Paul wants them to see is that this syncretistic way of life is so hateful because under the guise of obeying the law, it in reality runs directly counter to the heart of the law, which is verse 14, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? Right. If we if you just draw a little arrow from verse 6 to verse 14, I think, it, I think it helps, right? For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? Now, this, that might strike you as an odd way of putting it, Right, especially if you read this with the Gospels in mind, right? What was it that Jesus answered when the lawyer asked him, what is the greatest commandment in all the law? What was the response? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And only then did he say, and a second is like it, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But here Paul says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we might think, Paul, you've, this is awkward. Uh, you've missed the first half. But of course, he's not the only one who does this, right? What does James write in James 2.8? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And and it's not as if Paul here just made an error, because in Romans 13, verse 8, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, so what's going on? What's the connection? 
Well, it's that the whole law can be summarized in what Jesus calls the second great commandment, because that second great commandment is, is organically and inseparably connected to the first commandment by being its necessary fruit and required evidence. So we can put it in both, we can put it both ways. A true love for the Lord our God will manifest itself in a love for what He loves. If you love God, you will love what He loves. And what does He love? He loves those made in His image. So you cannot say you love God if you hate your neighbor. Or you can put it the other way. A true love for our neighbor can only flow out of a heart that loves the God in whose image those people have been made. Right, look at the contrast, verse 15. He says, verse 14, the whole love is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but, contrast, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Right, the way of life that they were pursuing, a way of life that would have seemed very religious, very pious, in reality looked with disdain on others. So one commentator said, every man-made religion, whether pagan or puritanical, ends up not only dishonoring God, but also mistreating people. Human religion, whatever form it takes, is a mechanism for self-righteous exclusion and sanctimonious comparing and elitism and self exaltation. And that fits, doesn't it? It makes sense. If you have convinced yourself that you can stand in the place of God, then of course you will look down on other people. So, what's the connection that Paul's making here? The connection is that The connection is that, that when we are redeemed, when we are truly set free for freedom, Christ has set us free. We are taken up out of that old pagan legalistic way of relating to God and relating to one another. All right? If we look at it perhaps in the way that that John describes it in 1 John 2. It might help us a little. 1 John 2, verse 4, he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And then John writes, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, what does that mean? How can the commandment be old and new at the same time? Well, John 13, 34. As you're reading through 1 John, one of the things you have to understand is John is very self-referential. Uh, John refers to his gospel a lot as he writes, and he assumes that his readers know his gospel. So, what does he mean in 1 John chapter 2? 
he's referring to John 13. And in John 13, 34, but, but in order to understand that, we have to jump forward in the gospel a little bit. So, so just track with me, hopefully. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 15, 10, if you commit, keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Jump back to John 13, 34, a new commandment that I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And that's what Paul wants them to see, is that there was actually a grain of truth in what their prideful hearts were telling them. There actually is freedom in obedience to the law, just not the ceremonial law, just not when we try to be justified by that law. There is real freedom in obeying the law of love because it is the very thing by which we were saved, and it was the very thing to which we were saved. Right? That's the connection with verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That's the mark of authentic faith, because that is the imitation of Christ. Right? That's John 15, isn't it? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That's verse 6. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's verse 14. Or think about what Paul wrote in Romans 6. Thanks be to God that you who were once the slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And when we read John 6 through the lens of, or when we read Romans 6 through the lens of John 13, 14, 15, how do we understand it? That, by the, that the love that we have been shown by Christ is a love that constrains us to imitate Him. If we have been loved by Christ to the point that He has given Himself up for us, even though we were not worthy of any such love, righteousness, true living, uprightness, holiness means imitating that love and extending it to others. That's what Paul is about to go on and parse out for his readers. He's about to go on and show the distinctions between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, the works of the flesh that bubble up out of that hard and persistent root of pride, but the fruit of the Spirit that is the product of a regenerated heart. Paul is going to contrast this for them. He's going to lay it out for them and say, flowing from the freedom that you have in Christ, is a compulsion to love others in the same way that you have been loved. And that's what made Paul so upset as he addressed these Galatians with, with words, the strength of which we really don't see outside of this letter. What had upset Paul so much was not that he was being contradicted. Now, yes, he has defended himself in this letter, and he has he has come to the defense of his own ministry, but that's not really what had broken his heart. It was that Christ was being robbed of his glory as the heart-changing, life-reorienting Savior that he is, and that his people were being sold a gospel that said that Jesus was just another way for you to get what you want, 
But the beauty of the gospel is that in the gloriously humiliating gospel, in which we are told in no uncertain terms that we, to use Jonathan Edwards' phrase, contribute nothing towards our salvation except for the sin that made it necessary, it humbles us, it breaks us from that root of pride, and it reorients us from not only trying to save ourselves, but from also trying to prove ourselves over and against one another. What Paul wants us to see is that Christ is the great emancipator who has set us free from the slavery of our sin. It is for that freedom that we have been set free, confident and assured in the saving work of Christ, loving one another freely and joyfully. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we are tremendously thankful for the freedom that we have received in our Lord Jesus. We are thankful that we have been, that the shackles of our sin have been broken, and we have been called the sons of God, heirs even of the King, free beings in the world. But, but we confess that, much like the Galatians, we still find in ourselves a tendency to to go back to a kind of legalism, even just a soft legalism. But we pray that the stakes that the apostle lays down here would hit hard within us, and that we would see that, that any desire to compromise this free gospel may be even to lose our salvation. So help us to rejoice in the freedom we have in Christ, and having received so much from Him, Help us then to love one another, to fulfill the law of God by loving our neighbors as ourselves. Father, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.